Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. It is a new year. It is, of course, the second day of the first month, which makes that January. And again, the year is 2022. Now, I have been spending a great deal of time, I think now three lectures on the appetitive reward pathway, which is uh, associated, of course, with the central nervous system and the neuroendocrine system as well. Um, what I have done just in the last episode on New Year's Day was talk a little bit about pharmacology, particularly about the reward pathway being pirated by certain drugs of addiction. So on that theme, I thought I would spend more time on giving you a general description of the central nervous system with uh, input from the primary literature associated with obesity and inflammation, which can be associated again with the reward pathway because we know about the appetitive nature of the diet. And there's been a great deal of interest in understanding what the neural correlates are to obesity in humans beyond the level of the lack of control of appetite and then stomach filling and then the overall process of digestion that normally regulates food intake going, of course, all the way from the digestive system, from the stomach to the small intestine, to the generation of several hormones and factors that come from the pancreas and the liver that ultimately communicate with the central nervous system, particularly the HPA axis. And in the hypothalamus, particularly uh, looking at the neurons of NPY, GUTI-related protein on one hand, and then the CART and POMC neurons on the other hand. And that, of course, is co-regulated and adapted by the adipose tissue generation of the adipokine known as leptin. We haven't talked about ghrelin, which is generated in a while anyway, which is generated in the stomach, and particularly acyl ghrelin, uh, but we'll get back to that later when we tie things together. But right now, that's enough of an introduction, so let's just get going here, because I've got a lot to cover uh, in a very short period of time. So again, let's take a look at a paper that was published not very, two years ago, I guess, in the Trends of Endocrinology and Metabolism. And what it's looking at is overweight and obese being a, pande a pandemic uh, in human disease. And it's associated often with metabolic dysregulation. We know that the hypothalamus integrates the neural and the nutritional and the, and the hormonal cues that regulate homeostasis. And these, of course, include the circadian rhythm, body temperature, thirst, food intake, 
and of course, energy expenditure and lipid metabolism, as well as glucose metabolism. We also know that the hypothalamic neuropeptides, the ones I just mentioned, are significant in all those processes. So the idea is to go one step further and look subcellularly and determine if there's any role of the ER stress response, particularly the unfolded protein response of AMFS particulum. Because this, of course, is going to be linked intimately to glycosylation pathways for proteins that end up being voltage-gated channels and G-protein-coupled receptors on the surface of, of cells. And these all play a significant role in the signal transduction cascade that is indeed associated with this entire obesity, uh, overweight pathology that seems to be linked with a disruption of leptin-mediated control over appetite and thus the reward pathway. So we'll eventually get back into talking about propio melanocortin neurons and the NPY neurons, but let's just move uh, on. I also want to tell you that there is uh, a gene known as the TUB or Tubby gene, and it's been associated also with late onset obesity and insulin resistance. Um, it's been studied in the mammalian um, model uh, of the murine system, but it's also been well described in obesity in humans. So the Tubby gene function is not fully understood, but it definitely is associated with the hypothalamic arch, and it does regulate food intake and therefore adiposity. So it must be linked to leptin at some level. Now, aside from that function in the central nervous system, the Tub gene has also been implicated in energy metabolism directly in the adipose. So this energy metabolism in the adipose, of course, is going to have to do with conversion of glucose to triacylglycerol, but also the mobilization of triacylglycerol upon um, hormone-sensitive lipase activity and lipoprotein trafficking. So work has been done on localizing within the hypothalamus where the tub gene is expressed at the transcriptional level. So some of the studies have included using RT-PCR. And with that kind of analysis, it was determined that there are likely two inhuman tub gene splice variants. And basically one short and one's long of these two transcriptional variants. They're both found in the hypothalamus. In fact, you can find them in both obese and in normal weight subjects. And when biopsies are done with visceral and subcutaneous adipose tissues, that's VAT and SAT, uh, from uh, a huge study, because this is done in humans, of 50, over 50 severely obese, and then the control of about 25 non-obese, the attempt was made to look at tubby expression and whether or not it was linked to obesity and metabolic health. 
And what was determined was that the expression of both of those tub transcripts, the short and the long, are both still in the hypothalamus, but only the short form was found in the two fat depositions, both in the visceral and the subcutaneous adipose, the vat and the sat. So this is interesting because now you're starting to see a differentiation of gene expression from where signaling um, is generated, that would be the adipose, to where the signal finds its target and then controls uh, appetite. And that, of course, is in the hypothalamus. So we see already a differential regulation, right? So it looks like tub transcript, uh, because it's detected in the hypothalamus, is very likely associated with body weight regulation. And that includes the nucleus basalis of what are known as the Maynard and the paraventricular, supraoptic, and tuberomammillary nuclei. Okay, we've discussed these before. They the the paper that I've been reading found no difference in the hypothalamic tub expression between the obese and the control groups, but the level of tub transcript was significantly lower in the adipose of obese people as compared to controls. So tub expression seems to be negatively regulated with overall body weight and obesity. And it seems to be linked in a fat depot-specific manner. So what the results uh, of the paper that I looked at recently, this was published about a, two years ago, and I put all this in the show notes, what it suggested was that the expression of the tubby gene in the hypothalamus, especially in areas involved in body weight regulation, those would be the neurons that are either linked to POMC or to NPY, and that correlation to tub expression adipose tissue and obesity clearly can be described. So we're going to get back to this later on, right? Now, the tub gene itself, I will mention just briefly here. Uh, you can look it up in gene cards. And what its function is, of course, is in signal transduction. As it turns out, the signaling comes from heterotrimeric G-protein couple receptors. And this tub gene does bind to membranes. And the membranes particularly involved in phosphatidylinositol 45 bisphosphate hydrolysis. The tub gene also seems to be able to bind to DNA, and so therefore it seems to be a transcriptional regulator or transcriptional factor. And it is definitely involved in the hypothalamic regulation of body weight. So it seems to contribute, the tub gene, to the stimulation of phagocytosis of the apoptotic retinal pigment epithelium, or RPE cells, and in macrophages. So it's pleiotropic roles, which is not surprising. Again, the TUB, or another term for it, is the TUB bipartite transcription factor, is indeed uh, a protein coding gene, and there are diseases associated with it. A couple of them might seem to be outside of our normal discussion here, but I think after a while we'll see that they're not. One is retinal dystrophy and the other one is retinitis pigmentosa, both of which are linked to human obesity. Now, there are related pathways. 
such as the presynaptic function of the canate receptors. And again, because transcription, because Tubby is a transcription factor, it seems to have a transcript and protein expression level that is ultimately linked to not only the appetitive phase of the reward pathway, linking the adipose to the hypothalamus, but also to G-protein couple receptors linked to photoreceptor activity. So we need to get back to this because it's going to be very interesting, I think. But let me back out now a little bit and talk about the nervous system in general because this is important to see where, where the hypothalamus is associated as opposed to the various other sub-tissue nuclei that we find in the CNS. So the CNS, or the nervous system in general, I should back up, is divided into three systems. The CNS, which is the brain and the spinal cord. Then we could talk about the PNS, the peripheral nervous system. It has over 30 different pairs of spinal nerves and 12 cranial nerves. And then, of course, the third is the autonomic nervous system, or the ANS. And that itself consists of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. So the CNS, sensus strictu, has a function for receiving and processing sensory information that's correct, such as the well-fed state, and in creating the appropriate response to what is being signaled to the central nervous system. And this appropriate response can be to muscle and also to the immune system and also to all the different exocrine glands, including the pancreas, for example. CNS, of course, coordinates and controls the affective state of, this, of the mind, that's emotion, but also memory, cognition, and knowledge gathering. The CNS itself is associated with circulation by being bathed by the cerebrospinal fluid, or the CSF. We talked a little bit about that anatomy before, but we'll get back to it now. I want you to also know or be reminded of that there is a gut-brain axis. We've talked a lot about this in the last several months, really. And this gut-brain axis is a crucial component for the control of food intake and, again, the regulation of the energy balance. So to be an efficient system, this entire regulatory system has to be associated in this manner. It has to be complex. That means it has to be redundant in sensing nutrition and in monitoring the process of digestion. This regulatory system, this gut-brain axis, also has to be flexible because of the episodic nature of dietary intake. And it also, because it's flexible, it has to be integrative and it has to generate a mechanism whereby the system can learn and adapt to changing external and internal conditions. That includes environmental, right? Likewise, this gut-brain axis has to have a very potent effector mechanism for energy 
utilization and for energy intake in the forms of dietary carbohydrate, protein, and of course, lipid. So that means it has to be ultimately linked to metabolism throughout the body. The brain, of course, has inputs and outputs to many organ systems, all of them really. Um, and it's a crucial integrator uh, of all of those organ systems, right? One of the more significant nuclei in the CNS is the one linked to the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus is absolutely necessary and universally so for the control of appetite. That means food intake and therefore body weight control. So we're going to get back to this whole discussion of the hypothalamus and um, as time progresses. But right now I want you to know that the brain uses a host of nutritional cues from both inside and outside of the body using the sensoria. And this is during and after the ingestive period. So during the initiation phase of uh, food consumption, attention has to be shifted to ingestive behavior because hunger or the opportunity to consume any high caloric density food has to be linked to the um, metabolic hunger and then be satiated, satiated when there's an absence of metabolic hunger. Now, during this procurement phase, dietary resource, you have to have unconditioned and conditioned stimuli from food and indeed food cues that have to interact with the external senses along with the cognitive, the affective, and the executive brain decision linked, of course, to the prefrontal cortex. Now, during the consumatory phase, there are interoceptive signals from taste and from the GI tract, and that has to reach the metabolic CNS guiding mechanism and this is a stereotypical process of digestion, transport, and absorption we talked a lot about. These anticipatory reflexes uh, within the central nervous system have to exist a priori so that any future experience of dietary intake will be associated with the same parameters of regulation, thus generating optimal limitation on food intake. Finally, you also have a post-ingestive or metabolic phase of this overall gut-brain axis. And the signals from the gut, and then those indirectly from the pancreas and the liver, of course, um, that store and metabolize the primary products of energy and this includes now adipose tissue, and again, of course, I said liver, will inform the brain about the metabolic consequences of the digestive process. And this, of course, will generate episodic memorial representation of whatever the capacity of the meal is in terms of 
caloric content and density that could be stored for any future reference by the CNS in terms of memory. So there has to be an integration of external and indeed internal metabolic information. And the brain has to be able to regulate the um, inclusion of those sensory, sensory motor and memory core valuations so that long-term body weight homeostasis that includes flexibility and an adaptational capacity so that you can actually accommodate that episodic um, feed starve cycle, which can occur and certainly did occur during the evolution of this entire process. So again, you have a cognitive, emotional and executive brain that has to interact with the metabolic parts of the brain. And that has to be flexible, adaptive, anticipatory, and homeostatic. So you're going to get input from physical activity. And from that central nervous system, that's going to send signals back out to motor, the motor neurons, and particularly the musculature. Now, the physical activity itself is going to be getting information from the foraging procurement. Foraging procurement is going to be given information from the physical activity. That will lead to food cues and then to the accumulation of processes that allow for food intake. Some of this food cueing and food intake will, of course, become then conditioned, but some will remain unconditioned because of the episodic nature. So this will include the availability, the cost of obtaining the food, the palatability, and also it will link to the circadian clock mechanism, which will be linked ultimately in the modern human to social habitation and the built environment where food can be brought in. Food intake itself and choice is going to be relaying information to the cognitive, emotional, executive brain in terms of taste. And then that same region of the central nervous system will send back signals that are related to the beneficent effect of the taste sensorium so that increases in food intake will commence. Food intake and choice will also be delivering information to the digestive and absorptive capacity. This is going to give you the gut-brain axis we just went over, which will go directly into the central nervous system. And that has to, again, be flexible, adaptive, anticipatory, and homeostatic. And at the same time, the central nervous system feeds back into, sorry for the pun there, the digestion and absorption system. This, of course, relates to what? The POMC and PY axis we've spent time talking about. The digestion itself will generate micronutrients, and that will include then the requirement for antioxidants and the elimination of toxins. All that information also has to be received by the cognitive, emotional, executive brain, and that has to be relayed to the metabolic brain. Macronutrients and fuels, which are brought in from food intake after these series of processing occurring with the brain and with the external and peripheral nervous system, 
will then generate an internal milieu of storage of those nutrients. That'll include the white adipose, which will also send signals, as we know, in the form of adipokines to the CNS. And that'll include the metabolic parts of the brain, as well as the cognitive, emotional, and executive branches. You ultimately will also link up metabolism, energy, and expenditure. This will be delivered as an agency of metabolism. Metabolism will be sending signals via the liver to the central nervous system. And the central nervous system will be sending, sending signals back to the metabolic sequestration process via the pancreas. And think here about glucagon and insulin. Finally, the energy and metabolic expenditure will be leading to some aspect of thermogenesis with a small amount, yet very significant, 10 to 50% of brown adipose, which of course will uncouple the intermitochondrial membrane, allowing for um, non-shivering thermogenesis, particularly significant in neonate humans. But also that brown adipose will be sending uh, signals will be receiving signals, excuse me, from excuse me, from the central nervous system. Ultimately, then also the muscles involved, the muscles are a very important reservoir of signal transduction, as well as coming from aspects of growth and re regeneration of cells in the muscle, which turn over very rapidly, and ultimately to the reproductive cycle of the human in short term and in long term, right? So all of this is going to be regulated by the central nervous system. And the again, the CNS can be understood as that whole um, processing at the prefrontal cortex as it relates to the neuronal stimuli and input coming from the hypothalamus, but also from the insula and the amygdala, right? And that will be linked to the dopaminergic pathway and the serotonergic pathways we've been talking about recently in authentic biochemistry. That will be sending signals again to the OFC as well as the PFC. And remember how that signaling was processed. We talked about that very recently, just a few days ago. Go back and listen to those lectures if you don't remember, but I'm just giving you a heads up pun intended that time, that you need to be able to keep all this information in some kind of rational working order so that when we're moving through this rather rapidly, you'll be able, you'll be able to think about it and process it as we go on. So let's, let's now go back and move back up to 30,000 feet and go back and just talk about the central nervous system, because I want you to understand the overall anatomy and physiology here as well as the biochemistry, because otherwise we're not going to be able to discuss pathobiochemistry and pathophysiology, particularly in cases such as addiction and addiction to food linked to obesity and the whole host of diseases that are linked to obesity because of the essential pandemic of obesity and overweight capacity in humans, which leads to cardiovascular disease, cancer, and of course to many kinds of inflammatory diseases, including autoimmune diseases, which ultimately yield high levels of morbidity and indeed mortality to humans. So again, at the 30,000 foot level, central nervous system has to also have a support. 
and that includes bony structures of the skull and the vertebral column, which both encase the brain and the spinal cord. And these are then uh, processes that protect uh, from any external trauma. We know that the CSF and the meninges also, besides carrying out the process of keeping the circulation linked directly to the central nervous system, also provide buoyancy and shock absorbing capacity to the central nervous system, something we don't talk much about, but in neuroscience, we spend a fair amount of time uh, configuring. To go on this discussion of support and protection of the CNS, the meninges affix the brain to the skull so that the brain is therefore suspended and supported physically and anatomically. I can also tell you there are three layers of the meninges. There's the dura mater, which we talked about a couple of days ago. That's the outermost, obviously. It's thick, it's tough. It is basically collagenous and it protects all the soft brainy tissue within the CNS. Then you have the arachnoid mater, which I also talked to you just yesterday. That's the middle layer. It's thin, it's relatively delicate as compared to the dura mater. It's semi-transparent, it's web-like, and there's, it provides a potential space uh, unless there is a swelling in the brain and that would then involve some pathophysiological response, such as a TIA or a stroke or some other kind of damage going on. Now, within this arachnoid mater or mater, you have a CSF flowing. Finally, you have the PM mater.